Uh, we turn tonight to the Catholic Church and the Mother of Jesus. Uh, Polly and Susan are passing out uh, the, the, the text that I will be referring to tonight, which you might find helpful. And this is a rather uh, charged topic for many, as you can imagine, and I will certainly do the best I can. And I should tell you right away that many of you will not come away completely satisfied having all your burning questions answered, although, as I said, I will uh, do my best. Uh, so if this is a burning issue for you, as it is for many, uh, the issue of merit, uh, please do yourself a favor and commit yourself to reading on the topic. And to quote Thoreau, read the best books first. Uh, but even more, pray about it. Uh, for it's only by prayer that you really ever get to understand uh, any of this. And to begin by way of preface, thinking about the Lord's Mother, as we're going to try to do tonight, requires a different way of thinking than I've invited you to think uh, thus far. Up to this point, I've invited you to think mainly uh, historically and chronologically, for example, you know, how the doctrine of transubstantiation came to be, how it came to make sense. Here we're not going to think so much historically as much theologically, uh, dealing more with themes and types and conceptual realities. Now this may sound uh, overly intellectual, uh, but it's not really. Rather, I, I, I simply invite you to change the gears of your mind, the way they work, uh, and more importantly, to open your heart, uh, because it is true, as I just said a moment ago, uh, that, you, that you just can't encounter the truth about Mary outside of prayer. Uh, you're never going to get it until you come to that point. So I'm not going to attempt to uh, quote-unquote prove any of the Marian doctrines for you. Rather, I'm going to paint a picture that is hopefully beautiful and attractive. Beautiful enough to persuade you to take a leap of faith to pray with the Lord's mother. And uh, scandalously, as you may think at this point, uh, to pray to the Lord's mother. Uh, and this is how I came to grips with it, having... Uh, first a sense of the organic communion of the church, uh, I began to experience that uh, as maternal. And I simply prayed and encountered the Lord's mother, uh, which was an experience of grace in its uh, full divine humanity. And I know that uh, probably makes absolutely no sense to you, to many of you now, but uh, it did to me at the time. Uh, and it may sound like it's ripe for psychoanalysis, uh, and it is, uh, but that's part of the truth of human beings. Uh, it's interesting to note that Carl Jung, for example, uh, rejoiced at the uh, promulgation of the doctrine of the Assumption, even though he had a very extremely weird understanding of the church, uh, uh, misunderstanding of the church, we should say. Uh, but he saw something in it. Uh, so, what I'm trying to say is that the mode of discourse tonight is different. Now, uh, the issue of Mary causes a lot of reaction. 
Uh, on the one hand, it inspires beautiful devotion, uh, commitment, and uh, a very effective piety. While on the other hand, she's a scandal to many and a cause of great controversy. They, these are two ways of responding to Mary, uh, which many of us are, are, are probably familiar. You see here two pictures, devotion and controversy. You have on the one side, uh, great devotion, carrying the image of Our Lady of Walsingham on the national pilgrimage through uh, the village. And you'll notice that handsome deacon in the middle, <laughs> right? Anglican deacon at the time. Uh, I had the great fortune of being the same height as three other deacons in England, and so I was nominated to carry this very heavy statue of Our Lady through the village. Uh, and as we passed through uh, the center of the village, next to the pub, you had the old well where you had these other Anglicans. We all belonged to the same church, but uh, some uh, had different opinions than we. And they, as you might be able to read, were accusing of us of all sorts of idolatry and paganism and the cult of Isis and all that fun stuff. It was fun to be protested against. I mean, um, and when it was over, we all went to the pub and they joined us. Um, but Mary causes this, this re, these reactions, right? Uh, and again, for, for cradle Catholics, uh, you might not understand how electric and fearful uh, devotion to Mary can be. And again, speaking from my formerly Anglican context, there's this quote from Anthony Stafford, who was an, a lawyer, uh, but sort of a, a, a pundit of the day, wrote a very popular book, and he was on the Catholic persuasion of uh, the Church of England. And it was a bestseller, The Female Glory, and he has this one line, Tell they are good Marians, that is, members of the Church of England. Tell they are good Marians, they shall never be good Christians. Whilst they derogate from the dignity of the mother, they cannot truly honor the son. Now this is a very ancient instinct and an old instinct about how we approach uh, what John Paul II called the, the Christian economy of grace. Um, and Anthony Stafford noticed it was missing from the Church of England. That is, honoring the Lord's mother is and always has been very much tied to honoring the Son in His full divinity and in His full humanity. Uh, and imagine the scandal of saying this in a very Protestant 17th century England, bestseller though it was. Uh, what he said, and this is the point to consider, if you're missing Mary in love, somehow your Christianity as such is deficient. Uh, that's a very provocative statement to say, uh, to make this side of the Reformation. Uh, but something that um, I would suggest is also true and uh, theologically primeval. But I need to explain why I think that. We need to tell a biblical story in broad strokes, for time's sake, in which Mary is, the story in which Mary is ultimately intelligible. And it begins in Genesis, the story we all know from 
Vacation Bible School. So God created man in his own image, the image of God. He created in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. It's part of the basic story of our faith. Uh, Genesis, you'll remember, has two creation stories. Chapter 1 and then chapter 2. Two different accounts of creation. Two stories telling the um, same event in two different ways. But in this famous passage, we get that basic truth, that basic uh, dogmatic and philosophical truth of Jewish and Christian people. And that is, God created human beings, and there is a relatable quality to our souls, relatable to the nature of God, right? We're created in the image of God. There is a likeness there, a similitude of some sort. There's also, um, a, a, well, you know, a, a resonance, so to speak, between God and human nature, between your soul and His uh, deity. But to move on to the second creation story in chapter 2, again, we're picking up broad brushstrokes. Then the Lord, uh, God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Here's another general claim uh, about human nature as such. And that is, human nature, human beings, require companionship. Human nature is built to relate. It's built for relationship. And then a few verses on about the creation of woman. Oh, on the other side there. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Here's a, a mythological description of the creation of woman, uh, which must be read in light of Genesis 127, uh, telling how the first woman was created uh, directly and immediately by God, uh, which actually was a pretty radical idea uh, in comparison with some Greek thought, which uh, considered uh, a woman to be a failed man, right? Uh, which is what Plato would have told you. Um, so the Jewish and Christian cosmology that, that, you know, God actually made man and woman equally, directly, um, uh, was pretty radical in its context. So to step back again, we see that it belongs to human nature to relate to each other, male and female, and to God, since we were made in His image. There is a relatable quality that is male and female, both of which are open to the divine and open to each other, right? Uh, the, the word used in theology of the body is uh, complementarity, right? There, there is a complement between us and God, uh, between us and God, and between male and female. Uh, it's the basic uh, fabric of anthropology, and even deeper, what we call the natural law. And the familiar, uh, the familiar story that we've known since childhood goes on, as you know, uh, of Adam and Eve. Eve ate the forbidden fruit, and bad things happened. And God, speaking the truth of justice at that moment, 
said that since Adam and Eve chose to rely on their own wills and energies to be like gods, as the story says, then they must uh, bear the reality of their choice and work outside of Eden. After sin comes toil and labor pains. And also, um, spiritually and cosmically, as the story goes, there will, would be conflict, God said, uh, as long and deep as history itself, between human beings and Satan, and even mysteriously between woman and Satan. Uh, as in this enigmatic line from Genesis suggests there at the top. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God talking. Between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is um, this decree acknowledges the inauguration of violence in human history, of angst, or as Augustine said, all the wear and tear of the world. At the very beginning of the next chapter of Genesis chapter 4, we have record of the first homicide in history, Cain killing Abel, right? So things get bad quick. Uh, by Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, there's a line where God says, I regret having ever made them. So it goes to hell in a handbasket in short order, right? As we know. Nonetheless, after the fall, after the fall, not insignificantly, we have the account of the naming of Eve there at the bottom. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve's, Eve means the mother of all living. And again, when we see this in broad terms, we notice that man and woman were made to relate to each other and to God. And that this uh, anthropological reality uh, about uh, what psycho psychoanalysts would call relations uh, is located in history. A history of violence and destruction and sin, like on earth, right? But, very importantly, it's a history in which God chooses still to name the first woman Eve and to speak of having children in the future, right? God, in talking about Eve, very significantly, very importantly, after the fall, in talking of uh, her offspring and in calling her the mother of all living, reveals that life will go on in spite of sin and evil. This moment, Genesis 3.15, where God implies that life will continue, is the beginning of what we call hope. Right? Right? He did not stop. He let the story go on despite the evil. That's the point. Pope Benedict XVI, emeritus, we should say these days, long before he became Pope, reflected upon this very thing. And we're going to sit at his feet quite a bit tonight. But this is his take on that curious little fact that 
the naming of Eve happened after the fall. In my opinion, it is significant that her name is bestowed in Genesis 3.20 after the fall, after God's words of judgment. In this way, the un undestroyed dignity and majesty of woman are expressed. She preserves the mystery of life, the power of nothingness, the antithesis of Yahweh, who is the creator of life and God of the living. She who offers the fruit which leads to death, whose task manifests a mysterious kinship with death, is nonetheless from now on the keeper of the seal of life and the antithesis of death. The woman who bears the key of life thus touches directly the mystery of being, the living God, from whom in the last analysis all life originates and who for that reason is called life, the living one. That is, there is something mysterious that in all the pain and trauma of woman, pain and trauma of birth giving, which happens in toil and pain, uh, which is a risky business, that is the very space in which life happens, right? And that itself is a parable for the woman who ate the fruit becoming herself the mother, becoming herself uh, not only the inaugurator of destruction, but the inaugurator of salvation. Does that kind of make sense? We're, ta we're, we're thinking thematically here, right? Um, symbolically. So this woman who participated in the arrival of death and for sin and who experiences the risk of death and toil in the very event of the birth of life uh, is the bearer of life, the agent of hope in darkness, uh, uh, to speak sort of mystically. So in the figure of woman and in women individually, uh, speaking from a biblical perspective, is both light and dark, right? Destruction and life. Uh, but the, the uh, elan, the overall trajectory of woman, of womanhood, so to speak, uh, is life, right? Woman as bearer of life. Um, and this is the beginning of biblical theology of women. Some people, uh, even a, a, can't remember her name, uh, feminist uh, theologian, uh, suggests that the beginning of the tradition of the mantilla, right, uh, the head covering, which most people used to wear, um, wasn't actually uh, subjection, but it was an un understanding of the sacrality of woman, right? just like you had the tent of meeting where the Shekinah would come down in the presence of God, right? And you had to cover it, just so you had to cover woman, right? Holiness, because so, she was like a walking temple. Um, but that's just a theory. We don't do these things these days because we're enlightened, right? Um, anyway, Israel and woman, an Old Testament theology of woman, very briefly. Uh, this figure of woman, this, in the shadow of Eve, uh, appears repeatedly in the stories of the Old Testament. We see, see it in the story of Sarah and Hagar in Genesis 16. Hagar, of course, is the Egyptian slave and concubine of Abraham, still called Abram at that point in the story, actually, uh, whom Sarai, not yet Sarah, uh, gives to Abraham so he can have a child because Sarai uh, had not been able to bear any children, and she thought herself past her age and unable to do so. 
So Hagar gave birth to who? Ishmael, right? And uh, she ran away because Sarai um, became jealous and started mistreating her. So it's a really rough little trying, love triangle story, actually, Genesis 16 and 17. Um, and all this happens before the elderly Sarah gives birth to who? Isaac, right? This unlikely old woman. She laughs when she hears the news, right? That's not going to happen, but it happens, right? There's also the story there in the middle of Rachel and Leah. It's a beautiful story um, from Genesis 29 and 30. Both are daughters of Laban uh, and are married to Jacob, although Jacob loved Rachel more uh, and worked for seven years, you know. Laban said, you can marry my daughter if you work for me seven years. So he worked for seven years. Uh, and then he gives him Leah, which is, she's sort of a, a homely girl, really. She's not very pretty. And um, I don't know how their weddings went down, but they consummated it before he figured out, oh, oh, this is the wrong woman. Um, could you imagine? And uh, so he goes to Laban, upset, you tricked me. And Laban goes, what are you talking about? You know, um, and Laban says, okay, well, if you work for me seven years more, you can have Rachel too. And so he goes, okay. So he works seven more years, right? And this time, you better give me Rachel. And he gets Rachel. Anyway. So, but the story continues because Leah, the homely one, the one he didn't love the most, has four sons right away. These are the tribes of um, Israel, right? Uh, and Rachel can't have children, right? She gets upset and she gets angry. And she, just like Sarah before, grabs a concubine, poor girl named Billah, and makes Jacob sleep with her and she gives birth to some sons, right? But then at the very end, Rachel gives birth to who? Joseph, right? And Dinah, poor, poor Dinah, right? Um, but Joseph becomes the salvation of the family in Egypt, right? And then you got fast forwarding the story in 1 Samuel 1 of Hannah and Penina, two wives of this fellow named Elkanah. And although he loved Hannah more, Elkanah did, she was unable to have any children. And Penina, who was, uh, taunted her for it, tricked, uh, you know, made fun of her because of it. Uh, and every year they would go up to, to offer sacrifice. And Elkanah would, ta would take the um, sacrificial meat and give more of it to Penina and her kids, obviously. And poor old Hannah would only get one. Right? And she was humiliated by it. And after several years of this happening, she has nothing more to do with it. She refuses to eat. And Elkanah, you know, the Alcana's like, what's wrong? You know? And because um, he's probably clueless up to that point. But she's in her deep humiliation. She goes into the temple. Um, and, and it says very specifically, it says, she prayed to Yahweh in the bitterness of her soul. Give me a child. Right? And she conceives. And who does she have? Samuel, the great prophet. Who finds David and anoints him, right? Um, so you have these stories. And the connecting theme in all of them is that <clears throat> it's the unlikely woman, the apparently infertile woman, who becomes the woman who gives birth to a child promised by God. A child through whom the covenant of salvation continues through history. 
right? Isaac, the son of Sarah. Joseph, the son of Rachel, right? Samuel, the son of Hannah. Um, what we're to see here, very uh, broadly, is an inversion of normal expectations, uh, an inversion of value. And again, Pope Benedict sums it up very nicely. He says, yet the mothers also play a specific role in the history of the patriarchs, Sarah, Hagar, Rachel, Leah, and Hannah, Penina, are those pairs of women in whom the extraordinary element in the path of the promises stands out. In each case, the fertile and the infertile stand opposite each other. And in the process, a remarkable reversal of values is reached. In archaic modes of thought, fertility is a blessing, infertility occurs. Yet here all is reversed. The infertile one ultimately turns out to be the truly blessed, while the fertile one recedes into the ordinary or even has to struggle against the curse of repudiation of being unloved. The theological implication of this overthrow of values becomes clear only gradually. From it, Paul developed his theology of spiritual birth. The true son of Abraham is not the one who traces his physical origin to him, but the one who, in a new way, beyond mere physical birth, has been conceived through the creative power of God's word, a promise. The point is that in these stories, it always seems that the woman who, according to the biological view of things, is infertile, becomes the woman who receives the gift of a child who plays a part in the story of redemption. Right? Sarah and Isaac, Rachel and Joseph, Hannah and Samuel. Uh, and what this reveals is that God's ways are not our ways. His power is revealed through the weak and the unlikely. And of course we read these stories against the backdrop of the story of Eve, right? Uh, the mother of all living, the life uh, that emerged in the darkness of a sinful world. But that's not all there is to say about women in the Old Testament, not in the slightest. There are women like Esther and Judith. Uh, I tried to recommend the virtues of Esther to Maggie a few weeks ago, and she didn't quite get it. Um, Esther was a Jewish orphan, a girl who, according to cultural convention, uh, was of absolutely no account. I mean, she's, a, she's an orphan, she's a Jew, she's a girl. You're, I mean, you're out of luck. Uh, but as the story goes, she was made queen, right? Uh, through uh, the manipulations of Mordecai. Uh, and because she was uh, very, very beautiful uh, and, and very intelligent. And as the story goes, she becomes queen and she is thereby able to orchestrate the salvation of her people. I need to actually show you. There's Esther. There's our high school picture. Um, but you also have the story of Judith, which is even cooler in my estimation. She was a devout widow who took charge of her village, uh, dictating to the elders of her village, the men of her village, just how she was going to handle this threat of uh, Holorphanes, the Assyrian commander, who was just outside the gates, ready to destroy them. Uh, and the story goes on. Judith goes out in the middle of the night, all dressed up, pretty, 
seduces Holorphanes with her womanly ways. She gets him drunk, then cuts off his head. Right? Not quite what he expected. It's a wild story, but like the story of Esther, it's a story of an unlikely woman who plays the role of savior. Right? The other great woman is J.L., who <clears throat> in Judges uh, hammered a stake through the guy's head. We don't tell these stories in VBS, right? But they're there nonetheless. Um, the weak woman of no account becomes the strong one, right? It, sh it doesn't make sense that a widow and an orphan girl should have any significance whatsoever. But she becomes the woman through whom God saves everybody, all people. And, and you know, I mean, these are stories which, according to the power of politics of the world, should not happen, right? And again, as Pope Benedict summarizes nicely, he is really the teacher tonight, as you'll figure out. The great salvific figures of Esther and Judith appear, taking up again the most ancient tradition as it was embodied, for example, in the figure of the judge Deborah, who we didn't have time to talk about. Both women have an essential characteristic in common with the great mothers. One is a widow, the other is a harem wife at the Persian court. And thus, both find themselves in very different way, ways in an oppressed state. Both embody the defeated Israel, yet both personify at the same time Israel's unconquered spiritual strength, which cannot boast as do the worldly powers, and for that reason knows how to scorn and overcome the mighty. Right? They embody these subversive virtues. Um, so these Old Testament women, aside from just being remarkable, uh, embody and personify the people of Israel as a whole, uh, which of course from a wider global perspective uh, is a small little runt of a nation of no significance whatsoever, right? Uh, so in these stories of these unlikely women doing these amazing things up against the mighty and the powerful, the story of Israel is told, right? Uh, a story of a divinely elected and sometimes subversive power, right? So in telling the story of Esther, Israel is telling a story of itself. Does that kind of make sense? Um, and again, we follow Pope Benedict. The woman as savior, the embodiment of Israel's hope, thereby takes her place alongside the unblessed, blessed mothers. It is significant that the woman always figures in Israel's thought and belief not as priestess, but as prophetess and judge savior. What is specifically hers, the place assigned to her, emerges from this. The essence of what has been previously seen is repeated and strengthened. The infertile one, the powerless one, becomes the savior because it, because it is there that the locus for the revelation of God's power is found. After every fall into sin, the woman remains mother of life, right? So in these stories, uh, we see the smallness and weakness of Israel, as well as the smallness and weakness of humanity in the stories of the small, these small and weak women. But that smallness and weakness becomes the very place, the very space in which God acts, uh, the space in which God's power works. Uh, 
through which Israel is saved as a whole, right? But there's other themes that we've got to consider in order to paint the picture that will help us understand Mary involving uh, woman and the feminine. There is the great nuptial analogy, the divine marriage of Israel and God, right? Uh, that is seeing the relationship between God and Israel in terms of a marriage, right? Uh, God is the bridegroom and Israel the bride bound together in a monogamous union. Uh, Israel in this analogy is portrayed as feminine, as, as woman, uh, which helps us understand how the story of Israel can so easily be told in the stories of Esther and Judith and these other women. Uh, but there's also the theme on the other side of wisdom, Sophia, uh, which is significantly a feminine noun, uh, found in the so-called wisdom literature of the Bible, the Book of Wisdom, Proverbs, um, things like that. Uh, here, Israel is portrayed, uh, for Israel, wisdom is portrayed in terms of, uh, to be wise you must be purely receptive, you know, pure receptivity to God. Uh, it's a rather mystical way to describe our, our necessary openness uh, to God. And, and again, to speak of openness to God lends itself to speaking of the feminine, right? Uh, in, in very sort of earthy ways. This is what Pope Benedict called uh, the feminine principle of salvation, uh, which is absolutely necessary to understand salvation itself, he said, uh, and theology and reality. So these themes of the feminine, from Eve, the mother of all living, through the great and, uh, and unlikely matriarchs of Israel, to Israel herself, rendered as feminine. All these things uh, coalesce, so to speak, to form the context, the biblical context, in which to understand the story of Mary of Nazareth, right? A young Jewish girl who suddenly found herself standing before an angel, right? Who, according to medieval tradition, was sewing the temple veil that would be torn on the day, on Good Friday. Uh, it's not in the Bible, but that, it's a medieval tradition. And here's the story which we know. He will be great when we be called the Son, this is Gabriel to Mary. He will be great when we call the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him uh, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And as you know, Mary said, yes, be it unto me according to thy word. Exemplifying what? Pure receptivity. Exemplifying wisdom, Sophia, right? Uh, the ideal response of Israel. Understood now uh, against the backdrop of these unlikely women of Israel uh, who were vehicles of God's power and purpose. And the story goes on. Uh, Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth in the hill country down by Austin. And, um, and herself was an unlikely mother, right? So there's the, there's the passage at the bottom. It says, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby in her leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she claimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth is praising Mary as a good Jewish woman, like Hannah, right? And notice that Elizabeth uh, recognizes that she is being blessed through Mary's presence. Here, the presence of Mary and Jesus are uh, intimately intertwined. Blessed are you, that the mother of my Lord, very mysteriously this early in the Gospel, that the mother of my Lord should come to me. The divine feminine, right? The Jewish feminine bears the Christological, bears Jesus, bears the, the, the coming of Christ. Uh, this is really the, the heart of the mystery of the Incarnation. And then Mary sings the Magnificat, almost verbatim, the words of Hannah, who sang praise to God when Samuel uh, entered her womb. Uh, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked with favor on his lowly servant, right? If you say the divine office, you say this every evening. Uh, it's, it's Mary speaking her praise of God with the words of Hannah. So it's a very Jewish context, the story of Mary, of Nazareth. But in this Magnificat, I mean, let me, let's read it a little bit. Um, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for what? He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. From behold, from now all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. We see right there how God acts through smallness and weakness, right? She's speaking as Sarah and Hannah and these great women before him. It's a thoroughly Jewish story, the first chapters of Luke's Gospel. Through this unlikely woman, God works to save his people. So the story of Mary takes all these stories from Eve to Esther and wraps them up into a very singular story about the birth of Jesus, right? Uh, savior not only of Israel, uh, but of the, of the whole world, right? Does it, so you see sort of the, the biblical backdrop of, of the story of Jesus. Um, and, and understanding this feminine uh, milieu uh, is absolutely essential to biblical faith. And again, to follow Benedict, who sort of ties a bow on it. He says, <clears throat> Thus we can now say, the figure of woman is indispensable for the structure of biblical faith. She expresses the reality of creation as well as the fruitfulness of grace. The abstract outlines for the, the hope that God will turn toward His people receive in the New Testament a concrete personal name in the figure of Jesus Christ. At the same moment, the figure of the woman, until then seen only typologically in Israel, uh, although provisionally personified in the great women of Israel, also emerges with the name Mary. She emerges as the personal epitome of the feminine principle in such a way that the principle is true only in the person, but the person as an individual always points beyond herself to the all-embracing reality which she bears and represents. What he's saying here is that in the Gospel, we find the whole of Hebrew hope 
found and answered in one person, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, right? <clears throat> Up until the moment of the Incarnation, every Hebrew soul was yearning and longing to what? To know God, to be with God. When He came down and took flesh, it was achieved, right? <clears throat> so that hope is achieved in one person, Jesus. But also, essential to the story uh, is that feminine narrative, which is summed up in one person as well. Mary, who said yes, right? That pure receptivity. Uh, and this uh, typological understanding is, is essential to understanding the gospel itself. And just to, as an aside, you know, typology, by the way, um, is, is essential to understanding so much of the Bible and theology. Uh, and without understanding typology, uh, you'll misunderstand much of what the church teaches about Mary and Jesus, um, or the faith in general. Uh, now, what do I mean? Uh, by typology, I mean, of course, that process of understanding something in the present uh, in terms of events and figures of the past, right? Uh, for example, Christ is often portrayed as uh, a type of Moses, right? He goes up on a mountain and instead of giving ten commandments, he kind of gives ten beatitudes, ten-ish beatitudes. And then he goes off and does sort of ten-ish healing miracles instead of ten plagues, right? Um, uh, Jesus takes a bunch of Hebrews out into the desert and they get hungry and what does he do? He feeds them with bread miraculously, just like, you see what I'm saying? That's typology. Um, or, as Peter would say, um, Noah's flood is a type of Christian baptism, right? Or going through the Red Sea, the Hebrews escaping through the Red Sea, is a type of baptism. Uh, or Christ is a type of, Adam is a type of Christ because he's the new, new man, the new creation, right? Um, in reading the Old Testament, we see all sorts of types and shadows and figures uh, which point to and become clear uh, in people like Mary and Jesus, right? Uh, and these types are absolutely necessary if you're to understand the gospel or understand especially what, what the church says about Mary, right? Um, a lot of people will say, well, where's the proof text for that? Well, it's more complicated than that, right? You're not going to find one verse that says X, right? It's a whole way of looking at, at, at the whole, right? A whole way of looking at the whole. Um, that, that makes us understand what we understand about Mary. Uh, but as Benedict argues, uh, this area of biblical understanding, uh, to neglect this area of biblical understanding, that is the feminine narrative, uh, is to suffer a distortion of our understanding of God himself. And this is a pretty gutsy thing to say, really. He says, to deny or reject the feminine aspect in belief, or more concretely, the Marian aspect, leads finally to the negation of creation and the individualization of grace. It leads also to a picture of God's omnipotence that reduces the creature to a mere masquerade that also completely fails to understand the God of the Bible, <coughs> who is characterized as being the creator and the God of the covenant, the God for whom the beloved's punishment and rejection themselves, punishment and rejection themselves becomes the passion of love, the cross. <coughs> Long story short, what he's saying is, you know, sometimes, sometimes people have 
an image of God as a mean, angry judge and deity, Benedict is going to say, that's an imaginary God <clears throat> that comes to people who have forgot Mary. That's an imaginary God that comes to people who have neglected the feminine in the story of salvation. <clears throat> that's, that's his point. Uh, so, <clears throat> pardon me. <clears throat> to return to the gospel story, <clears throat> the story we all know, reading the story in terms of the history of Israel, <clears throat> we can build on this and see, and we can also read the story forward, so to speak, not just back into the pages of the Old Testament, but forward into the history and story of the church. Uh, that is, not only is Mary prefigured in the women of Israel, uh, Mary herself prefigures the church, right? Uh, this we see when we look at Luke's Gospel and Acts of the Apostles, which Luke also wrote. Um, let's look at this. Luke, this is the story of the Annunciation of, of Mary. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And the child will be born, to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Um, Epilusetai, right? Uh, which is the exact same verb in the Greek that Luke uses to describe, to, to, to say this, uh, from the beginning of Pentecost, the beginning of the church. But you will receive, this is Jesus talking now, you will receive the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit has what? Come upon you, right? Epilethontos. Different conjugation, but same word. Uh, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Um, <clears throat> to back up, in addition to seeing just plainly that uh, Luke's describing the descent of the Holy Spirit on Mary and the descent of the Holy Spirit on church in the same way, saying there's some sort of analogous thing going on there. Um, we see a sort of uh, theological maternity going on here. Mary's faithfulness, her yes, opens herself up to the gift of a child. She has faith and therefore she gives birth to the child who is Christ. And thematically, <clears throat> we see in this that there is um, something analogously maternal about the advent of God in the world, right? Um, and in our lives, something uh, analogously maternal about grace, right? Just as Christ, just as Mary gave birth to Christ because of her faith, so the church gives birth to Christ because of their faith, right? Uh, Augustine would say that explicitly um, in several places where he talks about, you too are mothers of Christ, you know? The faithful, you and I, right? Um, but again, I mean, very, very broad broad strokes. We see here, right at the very beginning of the Gospel uh, or, or of Luke, Mary as a, as a type of the church. Uh, uh, there is a Mariological element to the, to, to the essence of the church, right? Um, and something like this is dramatized in John's account of the crucifixion. There in John 19, he says, So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Now surrounding Jesus are a few women, among them, his mother, and John, the apostle, the beloved disciple, most likely. 
Now very simply, Jesus gives John the Apostle to Mary, but in very Eve-like terms. He calls her woman, right? Which he called her woman at the very beginning of the Gospel, enigmatically as well. And likewise, the Apostle is given the care of Jesus' mother. Behold your mother. Now at this stage, um, we should realize we can't read this as a simply, if you know anything about John's Gospel, you can't read this as a simply flat historical account, right? Uh, but rather something filled with symbolism, right? Uh, there is something to this story which unites the Marian to the apostolic uh, and the ecclesial, the churchly. Uh, and at the very least, this story and also the sheer fact of the presence of the infancy narratives in the other Gospels, Luke, for example, shows that um, Mary had a significant place in early Christian consciousness. People were interested in the topic. Um, and this text, to speak a bit off topic a little bit, is, is sometimes used to argue for Mary's perpetual virginity. Um, for if she didn't have any kids, Jesus wouldn't have needed to see that John uh, should look after her. Uh, and this is by no means a smoking gun or conclusive uh, at all. It's, it's sort of a... But, but it's made. Sometimes people use that to invoke those discussions, but uh, I, I rarely do. Uh, and also Mary serves as uh, a type of a cosmic figure, um, helping John, as he saw in Revelation, in his vision. Uh, thinking about Mary helps John contemplate the completion of history, the end of time. The figure of Mary, or uh, as it says in Romans 12, uh, Romans, Revelation 12, uh, the woman clothed in the sun. She's not named Mary but it's very Mary-like, right? Very sort of Eve-like, Mary-like in, in Revelation 12. Um, this figure of the woman clothed in the sun tells the story of the cosmic struggle of the church in history, the church's struggle against Satan. And here at the end of the seventh trumpet in, in Revelation, uh, this story of Eve slash Mary, it all sort of coalesces together in this mystical vision uh, and it helps us contemplate the end of all things. Uh, there at the top it says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, and she was crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. And the woman in the sky in labor pains, um, the labor pains evoke Eve, right? Woman evokes Eve. Uh, but it's a woman who, as it says a few verses on, gives birth to a boy who is, quote, to rule all the nations. There's Mary as evoked, right? Eve, Mary. Uh, but it's not a story about Eve or Mary. It's a story about the church, right? Um, and it's a story about the church's struggle in history until the end of time. Uh, this is why at the end of the chapter, after the war in heaven, John talks about this cosmic woman's other offspring right there at the bottom. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That is the faithful, the church, right? So you can see why from the very beginning Christians were talking about Mother Church, right? Christians were seeing in Mary an image of themselves and of church. Um, we may even see specific features of Mary's life figured in this story. The woman in this story um, escapes the serpent. Uh, 
by being, by being given eagle's wings, right? To fly away. Uh, which some people have seen as an allusion to the assumption, right? Um, it's a remarkable visionary story, which at the very least says something remarkable about, her, about how early Christians understood the church and history and how they saw these things through the figure of the feminine and, and woman. Uh, now John Paul II sums up this Marian view of things. So in the redemptive economy of grace uh, brought about through the action of the Holy Spirit, there's a unique correspondence between the moment of the incarnation of the Word and the moment of the birth of the church. The person who links these two moments is Mary. Mary at Nazareth and Mary in the upper room at Jerusalem. In both cases, her discreet yet essential presence uh, indicates the path of birth from the Holy Spirit. Thus she who is present in the mystery of Christ as mother becomes by the will of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit present in the mystery of the church. In the church, uh, in the church too, she continues to be a maternal presence as is shown by the word spoken from the cross, woman, behold your son, behold your mother. Um, John Paul II thinks it's very significant that you have the Holy Spirit descending on Mary in her own room in Nazareth and Mary present at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes down using the same words, right? And he sees that as a signal that the Marian, the feminine, the openness, the receptivity continues to exist, continues to be in the church throughout history, right? Um, it's very important at this point uh, <clears throat> to note that Mary is not just a figure in Christian typology. Uh, it's not that Mary simply serves as a symbol for faith and spiritual birth. To quote John Paul II, if you notice at the bottom of that quote, she, quote, continues to be a maternal presence. Right? She continues to be a maternal presence. Uh, this is what separates Catholic and Orthodox theology <coughs> from many Protestant theologies. Uh, much, much Protestant theology um, can accept Marian typology, that she's a symbol and an example and things like that. Uh, but Catholic and Orthodox thought holds that Mary continues to function maternally uh, now in the work of redemption or in what John Paul II called the economy of grace. Um, Vatican II says this well. Um, taken up into heaven, Mary, taken up into heaven, she did not lay aside this salvific duty, but by her constant intercession continued to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. By her maternal charity, she cares for the brethren of her son, who still journey on earth, surrounded by dangers and difficulties until they are led into the happiness of their true home. Now the reasoning behind this is very simple. Uh, and that is this. Mary is still a person. She still is. Um, born and born again in Christ, like the rest of us, she enjoys uh, most fully because of her assumption, which we're not going to talk about tonight. Uh, she enjoys the, the benefit of the resurrection fully. Um, 
eternal life. And so Mary still is, right? Uh, Mary still serves salvation maternally as intercessor, much like any mother hopes for her children, actually. It's the same stuff of the soul. Um, this is what the Catholic, Catholic Church and Orthodox churches would say. Uh, and this is what makes Mary different from Eve. Uh, Eve is a, is a type but serves no function in redemption, right? Uh, Mary is both type and function because in Christ uh, she remains a person fully alive. Um, and again, the assumption is essential to understanding this fully, but we've, we've got to move on. Um, now, uh, turning to the place of Mary in Catholic worship. Why do we sing hymns about Mary? Why do we do things like pray the rosary? Uh, why do we pray to her, constantly bring her to mind? Uh, at 10 o'clock, you can go see the Matachinas. You should, it's awesome. Um, they're drumming for Mary. Uh, why, do, why is she constantly in our worship? The answer is twofold. First, uh, Mary reminds us of the organic character of salvation. That is, Mary reminds us <clears throat> that salvation is not some sort of purely intellectual, <clears throat> intellectual event, but that it involves body as well as soul. There is something <clears throat> necessary about always recalling the fact that salvation came through the womb and through the birth of a child, that very messy, earthy, organic thing with its own bells and whistles and smells and fluids, right? Um, this gloriously gross and divine event, right? Um, I've been there. I know what it's like. Uh, not firsthand, but I was a witness. Forgetting this, right? When we forget this about this, this event of birth being central to our faith, when we forget that, religion very quickly becomes a man-made philosophy, a Gnosticism. Uh, and second, theologically, Mary reminds us of the Incarnation. Uh, that is, contemplating Mary in worship helps us keep the Incarnation uh, in proper focus. And here, this is uh, from a Russian Orthodox theologian, Sergius Bolkov, uh, helps us understand this when he talks about um, when he talks about it. So let's look at this. The Orthodox Church venerates the Virgin Mary as more honorable than the cherubim and beyond compare more glorious than the seraphim, as superior to all created beings. The Church sees in her the Mother of God, who, without being a substitute for the one mediator, intercedes before her Son for all humanity. We ceaselessly pray to her to intercede for us. Love and veneration of the Virgin is the soul of Orthodox piety, its heart, that which warms and animates the body. I love that. Warms and animates the body. Uh, a faith in Christ which does not include the virgin birth and the veneration of his mother is another faith, another Christianity from that of the Orthodox Church. Protestantism is this other sort of Christianity with its strange and deeply rooted lack of veneration for, uh, for the virgin. Protestantism differs in almost equal measure from Orthodoxy and Catholicism Hence, even the pro now listen to this. Even the Protestant comprehension of the incarnation loses some of its fullness and power. Right? Uh, this is the point 
of Mary in Catholic worship. Mary helps us remember and understand the Incarnation properly, uh, that Jesus was fully human as well as fully God, right? Um, and I love here how Bulgakov talks about that's expressed in a, in a feeling of warmth. He says, I sometimes think that the coldness of atmosphere of some Protestant churches results from the absence of just this warmth, this maternal warmth. In her and by her, the feminine receives in connection with the Holy Spirit a place in piety, right? Um, and here's uh, more of what he means about Mary being necessary for understanding the Incarnation. Here in Protestantism, the Incarnation is only a means of redemption, which has become a bitter necessity because of sin, and hence the Virgin Mary is only an instrument for the Incarnation. Inevitable, but still something external. An instrument which is laid aside and forgotten when the need has passed. Uh, this failure to be mindful of the Virgin Mary is often found in Protestantism in such extreme beliefs as that the Virgin might have had other children by Joseph, or even a denial of the Virgin birth itself. The Orthodox Church never separates mother and son. She who was incarnated by him, uh, who was incarnate. In adoring the humanity of Christ, we venerate his mother, from whom he received that humanity, and who in her person represents the whole of humanity. Uh, now, on a very sort of human analogy level, um, how many of you are mothers? How many of you think that your function as mother ended the day you gave birth? Case closed, right? Case closed, right? Um, anyway, so what he's talking about theologically is that, you know, there's a recurring theme in the history of dogma, the history of theology. It's far too vast to outline here, but in short, the point is that whenever in Christian history theologians have gotten their ideas of Christ out of whack, they've also got their ideas of Mary out of whack. Usually the ideas of Mary get out of whack first, and then your ideas of Christ get out of whack. That is, um, whenever sort of, like in the Nestorian controversy in the fifth century, for example, people began to neglect or demote uh, Marian theology and piety, the distortion of their understanding of Christ always followed. You can see it as a pattern. In, in the history of theology. When we forget or demote Mary, uh, we can't help but begin to think of Jesus as either less than human or more than human, something other than truly human, right? And this is why uh, in the early church, arguments about the nature of Jesus always went hand in hand with arguments about Mary, right? What should we call her? How should we honor her? Is she, is she Theotokos or Christotokos? Is she, is she the mother of God or not, you know? Those are all Christological controversies. And as uh, John Henry Newman pointed out in Great Heroes, he says, it's simply a matter of fact, if you look at the history of modern Europe, that people who've neglected Mary in theology and, de and in devotion soon fell victim to the ravages of deism and, and secularism. And this is his quote. He says, here I observe first that, those to, uh, that to those who admit the authority of the fathers of Eph Ephesus, the great council in the fifth century, the question is in no slight degree answered by their sanction of Theotokos, or Mother of God, where they talked about that title. Um, as given in order, what? To protect the doctrine of the Incarnation, and so to preserve the faith of Catholics from specious humanitarianism. And if we take, this is the point, and if we take a survey at least of Europe, we shall find that it is not those religious communions which are characterized by devotion towards the Blessed Virgin that have ceased to adore her eternal Son. But those very bodies, when allowed by law, 
which have renounced devotion to her. The regard for his glory, which was professed in that keen jealousy of her exaltation, has not been supported by the event. They who are accused of worshiping a creature in his stead still worship him, Jesus. Their accusers, who hope to worship him so purely, they, wherever obstacles to the development of their principles have been removed, have ceased to worship him altogether. That he's saying, if you look at the history of Europe, the places where deism emerged, the places where the Enlightenment took root and started questioning the divinity of Christ, are those places where the piety of Mary was eradicated by law. But those dirty, pro those dirty Catholics in Italy, those dirty Catholics in Spain, they still held on to that strange idea that Jesus was divine while they said their rosaries. See what I'm saying? That's his point. Uh, and, and Newman said, that's just a matter of historical fact, right? Um, and of course, this is an error. This, this neglecting of the feminine is an ancient thing. It's an ancient theme and an ancient error. Uh, and in some of the apocryphal texts, those texts that did not make it into the Bible, as in the Gospel to the Egyptians, you see uh, uh, these words put into Jesus' mouth, um, where he says at the top, I have come to destroy the feminine, right? Do you imagine Jesus saying that, right? Or at the bottom, from the Gospel of Thomas, another text that did not make it into the Bible. When you make the two one, the upper is the lower, and when you make the masculine and the feminine one only, so that the masculine is not masculine and the feminine is not feminine, you will enter into the kingdom, right? So the Gospel of Egyptians is uh, kingdom life is fully masculine, not feminine. Or as the Gospel of Thomas is, it's um, sort of uh, uh, gender neutral, Right, this sort of idea of salvation having nothing to do with gender, uh, which the church instinctively um, rejected, uh, and the reason they rejected it is because of this deep biblical regard for the feminine, right, of Sarah and um, Rachel and Hannah and so on, uh, and this is what separates heresy from orthodoxy in so much of early Christian controversy from Gnostics, Gnostics from Catholics. The former wanting to eliminate gender difference uh, and the latter wanting to preserve it, the Catholic position wanting to preserve it. Uh, and this is because the gospel is historically a real story involving real persons who are gendered. You know, Jesus is fully human, he was a guy. Mary is fully human, she was a woman. Um, and God created those things. And, and salvation is not about erasing them, right? Um, so it's understandable that the Catholic view of the Protestant neglect of Mary in theology and worship, uh, which began at the Reformation, after the Reformation, not at the Reformation, very important, no, but began after the Reformation, uh, would be kind of like theological deja vu, right? Um, uh, and this is Pope Benedict's claim. It's a very important one. He says, modernity witnessed the development of another exclusion of the feminine from the biblical message, which while having different reasons from and being less radical than its Gnostic predecessor, was certainly no less influential. An exaggerated soulless Christus uh, compelled its adherents to reject any cooperation of the creature. If you have Protestant ears, you know exactly what they're saying. Um, An independent significance of its response as a betrayal of the greatness of grace. Consequently, there could be nothing meaningful in the feminine line of the Bible stretching from Eve to Mary. 
Patristic and medieval reflections on that line were, with implacable logic, branded as a recrudescence of paganism, as treason against the uniqueness of the Redeemer. Now, what is he saying there? He's saying, in the Reformation, with all these soul, faith alone, scripture alone, any talk of the significance of the creature in the story of salvation was demoted, right? Because why? We need to talk about God doing everything. God's grace, God's grace, God's grace, right? And so Benedict is saying the human place in that story was forgotten, which in that, and that happened to be the feminine part of the story, right? And, and so you get this idea of, 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 of God and the nothingness of the creature. And Benedict is saying that's not an accurate biblical view, right? And then he says there are consequences, as the rest of the quote says. Today's radical feminisms have to be understood as the long-repressed explosion of indignation against this one-sided reading of Scripture. An explosion, however, that has indeed taken the step to truly pagan or neo-Gnostic positions. The rejection of the Father and the Son that occurs in these theologies strikes at the very heart of the biblical witness. Right? Um, Notice how he understands the consequences of these Protestant and Western neglect of Mary. The explosion of these radical feminisms that rightly understand that something's wrong with this biblical picture of God. That the, that it's not, that the, that the story of salvation is not feminine enough. And, and Benedict's saying the tragedy is, is that they've given up on the story of Jesus altogether and have, and have sought after new paganisms. Right? Um, that's the problem. And so he says, um, as he goes on to talk about these radicalisms, he says, these radicalisms are tearing our times apart. Uh, are, they are heresies in the literal sense. In other words, a selection that refuses the whole. The drama of our day could thus foster a better understanding of the invitation to a Marian reading of the Bible that would have seemed possible just a short time ago. Conversely, we need this Marian reading in order to deal with adequately with the anthropological challenge of our time. Right? What he's saying is, you need to get a Marian view of things in order to understand what's going on. Now what's interesting is that I could, I could have quoted several Protestant theologians who say the exact same thing. They don't preach in churches, because they'd get stoned. But Baptist theologians like Timothy George says the exact same thing, right? He says the greatest tragedy of Protestant theology is that in reacting to Roman Catholicism, we threw out the baby with the bathwater, which was Mary. Right, um, and and he would agree thoroughly. Now I've got to wrap up. Obviously, it's an important topic, so I've been taking my time, but we're going to stop early. Um, but I just want to say, you know, as Benedict said, you know, we need to return to Mary to have a proper view of God, a proper view of um, of what's going on. All he's saying is return to the reformers. Right? You'll notice what I said a while ago: uh, Protestant hostility toward Mary happened after the Reformation, not in the Reformation, right? The Reformers had a very high view of her, right? But as Mary became associated as an icon of the institution of Roman Catholicism, the reaction of Protestants to her became worse and worse and worse, right? But let's look at just a few quick quotes from Martin Luther. It says, the veneration of Mary is inscribed in the depths of the human heart. Little, nice little homily. Uh, 
This is Mary, uh, Martin Luther being very Augustinian. He says, Mary is the mother of Jesus and the mother of all of us, even though it was Christ alone who reposed on her knees. If he is ours, we ought to be in his situation, there where he is. We ought also to be, and all that he has ought to be ours. And his mother is also our mother. Right? You wouldn't think that's a dirty Lutheran, would you? And he goes on, he says, uh, this is Luther on the Immaculate Conception, or on the Conception of Mary. It is a sweet and pious belief that the infusion of Mary's soul was affected from, uh, without original sin. Right? No problems there. And by the way, the Immaculate Conception refers to Mary's conception, not Jesus's. Mary's conception. Common misconception. Yeah. Mary's, Mary's conception in the womb of her, her mother, Anna, has nothing to do with Jesus. We can talk about that later. Um, uh, but also, um, the idea that Mary was a remained a virgin, a perpetual virgin, right? She did not have kids with Joseph after Jesus, right? Um, that was a belief held by Christians across the globe, and still is, by Christians across the globe until the 19th century, when historical criticism started to take root in Protestantism, right? And now you, talk, you survey most Protestants in America, they say, of course she had kids afterwards, right? Not realizing that they're saying something that 99% um, of Christians in the history of Christianity would have stoned you for, right? In fact, the Council of Ephesus in the 5th century said, he who does not believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary, let them be anathema. So it's pretty hardcore, right? Uh, Luther, as you see, um, Christ our Savior was real and natural fruit of Mary's virginal womb. This was without cooperation of a man and she remained a virgin after that. Calvin believed the same thing. Uh, John Wesley, a great Methodist, the Blessed Virgin Mary, who was as well after when she was brought him forth, continued a pure and unspotted virgin, right? The idea that the Protestants brought in these Marian denunciations is not correct, right? Um, also, again, as an Orthodox priest pointed out to me once, he said, you know, there's all sorts of brothers and sisters mentioned in the Gospels, right? Not a single one of them are mentioned as sons or daughters of Mary. And as Jerome said, quite correctly, linguistically, brothers could mean anything, right? But none of them are mentioned to be offspring of Mary, right? So the ver perpetual virginity of Mary, again, it's like when someone says to me, speaks to me as if it's obvious that she had kids, I quite historically point out to them that the burden actually is yours to tell me why I shouldn't believe it. Why should I stand apart from billions and billions and billions and billions of Christians to believe a few American Protestants, right? I mean, let's get down to brass tacks. Um, anyway, so we're going to have to stop there because it's two minutes to nine. Uh, more and more, uh, and like I didn't talk about specific things, obviously, uh, but if you, if you don't understand this basic foundation, you're never going to understand those specific things anyway, right? Um, so let's stop there. You do need to go back there at least to get your handouts. Uh, so just go back there and we'll say prayers and, and then go on. But at 10 o'clock, the Matachinas, if you've never seen them, they're pretty awesome.